welcome to episode 110 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I can't complain. Uh, I see that you're wearing a Red Sox hat. I am. And I, I hear something is going on in baseball right now. Oh, but I, man. I, everybody's going crazy about it, but I'm like, is there what's, what's happening? This World <laughs> World Series, right? What is this World Series you speak of? It's the of? World Series. Can it really be called the World Series when it's it's two teams in America and like maybe a few in Canada? Yeah, so that is a good question. I think others have brought that up before. And it's just as typical United States-centric language, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to see like the World Series include like a baseball team from like Papua New Guinea. That would be awesome. That, that would be pretty awesome. I mean, there is a World Baseball Classic. That sounds like a golf tournament. <laughs> the World Baseball Classic? Yeah, or like a <laughs> tennis match. Anytime you have the word classic involved, classic, yeah. it, it sounds like golf or tennis. I'm not sure why. Yeah, that's true. It's probably a good thing you and I aren't naming sporting events. Yeah, I would call this uh, the uh, United States series, I guess. I don't know. Like the, It'd be like the, the North American sort of maybe the United States and a few teams in Canada championship. Yeah, I mean, that has a ring to it. My goal is to talk about this for as long as the game was. I hate, wasn't it like oh my goodness, seven yeah. hours or something ridiculous like I that? Could, I couldn't even stay up for that. Yeah, it was over seven hours. That's a really long game. Now, it went into like extra innings, so it wasn't as if yeah. it just dragged on in it the normal length, but that was epic. Yeah. I saw a funny meme online today. One was a picture of Michael Horton, not Michael Horton, Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> The reason that that is associated in my head is because Michael Scott and Michael Horton share that Scott because it's Michael Scott Horton. Anyway, I saw a picture of Michael Scott and he had his hands in his head and it was like sermon went 10 minutes too long. And then oh, the I next one was like him being like super excited. It was like like World Series game was seven and a half hours long. Yeah, so that was pretty It just hilarious. goes to show that you will you will be excited and you'll find attention for the things that you really want to pay attention to. Yeah, when can we get some like extra innings in our sermons? Like just every now and again, it should be like, this is just too important. We need to stay and listen. You know, our church is kind of like that every week because the Sunday school hour is kind of like a second sermon, which I'm okay with. Um, but it's like, it's basically like another hour of exegetical analysis, which is fine with me. I love that. So, That's I like beautiful. that. I mean, it's kind of like the old school, like Presbyterian model of like Sunday night service was, is kind of like extra innings for right. a sermon. I love it. So Speaking once again, of, the Presbyterians do it right. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Except yeah. baptism. But it's just a... <laughs> <laughs> so oh are you my. ready? Ready for this? Yeah. It didn't take long for us to go there. No. Nope. Are you ready? Ready for this turnaround? Speaking of contests. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were just going to take it from there. Oh. Speaking of oh. contests. <laughs> I'm a little out of it today. I'm all like mellow and chill. I'm wearing like yeah. a, I'm wearing a nice hoodie and I'm, you know, I'm drinking like a nice ale. Uh, speaking of contests, this is currently 
if you're listening to this, the last day possibly for you to get in on our uh, NIV Biblical Theology uh, Biblical Theology Study Bible giveaway. Um, and only if you are listening to this on release day. So we have had this this contest going for like seven weeks, eight weeks now. And the last day is October 31st. So this episode will release on October 31st. So if it is, in fact, October 31st when you are listening to this, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest and you get enter to win one of six copies of that uh, epic Leatherbound Study Bible. It's handsome. It is handsome. And like all of our contests, you have to actually listen to the show in order to win. So there are lots of people that have entered that I think probably don't listen to the show, but they just picked up the link online. We will only announce the episode or the winners on our episode. And if you don't claim your prize, then we're going to give it to someone else. So you have to keep listening until at least until you have claimed your prize before uh, you can stop listening to our show. So basically, you just have to be among the listening remnant. You do. You have to be among the chosen. Or right the on. Choose it. The people who choose and then are chosen. <laughs> uh, this this conversation has already exceeded all my expectations. Yes. And we have another exciting contest coming up after that. So even if you win this contest, you should keep listening for the next contest, which is going to be pretty epic as well. Yeah. We got great stuff planned. We do. We always have great stuff planned except for our topics and our conversation, which are almost always unplanned. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that in terms of making it clear that it was the unplanned portion as, as right. far as not that they were not great. Yeah, sometimes they're not great, but people seem to like us anyways. <laughs> so what are we going to be talking about today? We are talking about worship. But not uh, not musical worship. So that might come up a little bit, but really we want to focus on kind of worship as a whole and kind of the, the distinctiveness of Reformed worship. Um, and I would imagine we're going to touch a little bit on kind of like the recovery of worship in the Reformation. Right. I love this because, of course, Reformation Day is coming up. But aside from just going into like some kind of narrow focused topic about Reformation Day, I'm glad you suggested this because we just had spoken about the distinctives in the Roman Catholic Church, and I was actually thinking recently, totally disconnected from everything that we've already talked about, just how prevalent the influence of the Reformation is on what we kind of understand as evangelical worship, and in some ways how I think going back to the Reformation or understanding what it was that really put forward this emphasis on worship is really what we need to come back to in other ways in evangelical Christianity because we've yeah. strayed too far. So I think this is a really apt and timely topic. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you know, talking about this baseball game and the sort of the joke with the Michael Scott meme um, is it's true, though, that like people will they will be okay with extended like extended devotion or extended attention to something that they enjoy, like a baseball game. Although I'm not sure how anyone can enjoy a baseball game because that's just me. But I can see your face. You just want to you just want to rage punch me right through the <laughs> no, right through the internet. No, it's not like that at all. <laughs> but um, they'll they'll pay attention to whatever it is they want to pay attention to, right? You got like people who play video games for like 19 hours straight. Right. Or people who will, you know, they'll they'll go see every Avengers movie and there's like 20 of them. So they'll spend like 60 hours watching Avengers movies. Right. And and then go and like want to start it all over again. But the 40 minutes to an hour to an hour and a half that people are um, 
supposed to be dedicating themselves to the corporate gathered worship of the saints on a Sunday morning, sometimes people kind of come out of that like, oh man, I wish that my service was just a little bit less lengthy. I wish that things were a little less uh, expanded. So can we like trim it up a little bit? Maybe like the sermon should be a little shorter or maybe we should do this or that or whatever. Right. Cause I got to get home or I've got stuff I've got to do. So I, you know, this kind of ties into like Calvin's doctrine of like the fact that humans are idol factories. We create all these things to invest meaning into, to invest our worship into. But then when it comes to the actual worship of God, sometimes we're not quite as zealous. Yeah, right on. And that happens even in little ways, doesn't it? Like, yeah. And I think we're all prone to do this from time to time. But if you've been in a church where it say there's more than one pastor on staff and maybe they preach at different times, you, know, you might see on the bulletin or the schedule that so and somebody's preaching and think to yourself, oh, that that's great. It means you probably will get out a little bit earlier because right. his, his sermon isn't quite as long. We just find ourselves falling into this kind of sense that the corporate gathered worship is. Like I guess, like you said, not as valuable or important or exciting as yeah. something else that we'd like to invest our time in that's either more secular or even just, just more of like a hobby. Yeah. So what would you say is kind of the distinctiveness of Reformed worship versus like, obviously, like we could compare it to Roman Catholic worship, right. but like other Protestant traditions have different sort of distinctives in worship. So what would you say is the distinctive of Reformed worship? That is a really good question. And I've, I've been thinking about this because what I've been impressed with when I've gone back and was, was reading this month, some of just the, the general history of the Reformation is I've just been astounded by how captivated the Reformers were with worship. Yeah. So sometimes you know, like reform tradition or like Calvinism specifically gets this bad rap where it's just all about systematizing theology and right. that becomes disassociated with emotion and expression to God. It becomes just kind of armchair theology and all these great ideas and kind of ephemeral topics. And the more I read though, uh, the more I look at the heart of these men and women, I see that they were just passionate about worship. And so it was also about understanding how are we made right with God, but it was also about how do we worship properly? And yeah. I'd like to think that if I were in the same situation, I would be as captivated in looking at the scriptures, but I'm, I am going to get to your, to your question, I promise, but I'm going like way back out. So I think what's interesting, what I think would be distinctive is the reformers in their time really well understood that the rediscovery of the gospel and reformation of worship were two sides of the same coin because like sung praise, confessions of sin and, sin and faith, prayer, reading and preaching of the scriptures, they're just various aspects of one ministry of the word. And so you see Calvin write about that in his necessity of reforming the church. But it, it's just this idea that reclaiming the gospel would naturally lead to reforming of worship. So this idea yeah. of what I find really striking in reformed worship is the identification of the fundamentals, worship and gospel, but the fact that the former is given this pride of place, and that's probably because the first fruit of rightly understanding the gospel is true worship. It's that important. So it's almost as if like the reformers were not necessarily protesting the order of service so much as the false gospel evidenced in worship. So I see this yeah. distinctive of really bringing together worship and gospel. And, and gospel worship is basically gospel response. Yeah. It's it's from the heart. It's um, and in that sense, I hate to use this word, but it's it's democratized. It is specific and it is participatory and it is loving and it is expressive. And it's not just this dead sense of knowing facts about God, 
but being so transformed by the renewing of our minds in those facts, in a sense, that it flows out in an expression of worship that is not done for us, but is done through us and then yeah. by us. So that yeah. that's like a really, I, I wanted to go like way out so we don't get like focused on like little tiny pieces of worship, like, you know, liturgy or, or music, but um, I don't know, what would you say? Well, I think, you know, the, the reform distinctive in terms of worship really does boil down to the regulative principle of worship. Right. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's this idea that we worship in spirit and in truth, but by that, what we mean is that we worship in the spirit according to the truth. Right. So we, we worship in the spirit according to the precepts of our Lord that he's laid down for us expressly in scripture or by means of good and necessary consequence. And so, you know, the, the Lutheran reformation did reform worship. So, so we don't want to say that like there was no reforming of worship that happened under Luther. Um, and there's historical reasons why Luther particularly did not reform as quickly as we saw like Calvin or even Zwingli, um, reform, but, the, the Lutheran Reformation of worship, in terms of, of our perspective as Reformed folk, we would say he, he didn't quite reform far enough. And the reason that we say that is not because, like, there's a particular practice that we think is like a holdover from Roman Catholicism, right? Sometimes you hear that, like, um, you know, this is one of those things that, like, sometimes— um, this is maybe a more inflammatory way to say it than I need to, but like uneducated Baptists who are trying to critique the Presbyterian view of baptism will say like, well, you, that's just like a hangover from Roman Catholicism, this infant right. baptism thing you do. And like, that's not true of, of infant baptism for the Reformed or for, for Lutherans. And it's not really true of, of worship, the, the, the normative principle of worship for Lutherans either, right? The, the Lutheran idea of the normative principle of worship is there because they think that's what scripture commands or teaches is, is this freedom in worship, this flexibility in worship. But we would look at it and say, you know, Luther applies the doctrine of sola scriptura to his understanding of soteriology and his understanding of all sorts of other elements of Christian um, life and practice. But I would actually say he doesn't, the, the Lutheran tradition doesn't really apply sola scriptura in the same way and to the same extent as um, to the doctrines of the church or the doctrines of worship, right? So ecclesiastically, they don't have like a defined polity. Um, right. they, they say like it's a, it's an adiaphora thing, how you organize your church. And they would say similar things about worship itself. Um, and so you have that. And then there's Anglicanism, which comes out of the Reformation and, and broadly speaking is part of the reform movement, not reformed movement, but reform movement without a D. Um, and they also don't hold to the regulative principle. So in, in the big traditions of the Reformation, the reformed tradition um, on the continent, and then also in a slightly different way on, on the British islands, is different. And that, that regulative nature of worship, regulative nature of everything really, is unique to the reformed tradition. So I think we have to dive into that a little bit. I mean, I don't want this to necessarily be like an episode on the regulative principle, because we've done that before, and there's all sorts right. of groups talking about that. But you can't really talk about the recovery of worship in in the Reformed tradition without framing that in the context of the regulative principle. And that's like the great fancy theological term for, I think, this sense that the Reformers had hearts that wanted to be sensitive 
to instruction by God's word and how to be how to worship Him properly. Which, if you think about the the yawn, like the gap between the first century church and then like Roman Catholicism before the Reformation, just how different those expressions of worship are. And what I love in these these men and women is their desire to go to the scriptures and to be sensitive and really forceful in looking for the instruction that God provides and right. then having fidelity to that instruction. So it's almost as if we had, we always have this penchant as human beings, like you said, as, as both as idol factories and just as self-serving beings that we not only want to create God in our own image, but we want to worship him according to our own style and our own preferences. And that right. of course happens like ubiquitously throughout history and in, in every epoch. But in particular, I just love that what the Reformed tradition does is, is it starts with that sola scriptura, and it goes like even all the way back to trying to understand where the f- first principles of worship like in the Old Testament. So you know, like for instance, when Israel was liberated from its bondage, and the nation is taken into the protective protective care of our Lord and God, I mean they're commanded not to have any gods at that point. Right. But the Israelites were not even to worship the true God apart from His own self revelation. So yeah. there's this sense that it's not just, I think we've said this before, it's not just who you worship, but how you worship him. Right. So getting that right is, both of those are important. Uh, you're you're going to be off kilter, of course, you get one wrong or the other, but getting them both right is important. I think that's what the Reformation tried to refocus us back on, was understanding yeah. that worship, both in its content and form, is important. And I think that still maintains to be like a distinctive today. It's not that I would say like most evangelical churches are not concerned with that, but I think that this for me is a bit like, man, I'm trying to come up with a good example of, of something that a uh, good metaphor, like if you, it, it's almost like you have to, like your worship muscles will constantly atrophy if you do not go and work them out by going to the scriptures and understanding what God has prescribed as the proper means of worship. Does that make sense? Yeah, it so does. Like, we're, we're prone to just sit there and we're going to fall away. We're going to go into our own patterns. We're going to go into our own, own habits. We're going to seek our, our own way. So unless we continually come back to the scriptures and always be asking, like, honestly, when we're, we're planning our services, when we're participating in worship, when we're preparing our hearts before the Lord's day to come into the congregation and to be a part of that gathered time together, if we're not constantly in a mind frame of preparation, according to the regulative principle, yeah. then our worship is not going to be efficacious. And uh, of course, like, like we talked about before, we cannot add anything to God's glory. It's not as if like we, when we worship accor- not according to the regular principle that we are somehow failing to add glory to God, but we are failing to acknowledge his glory in the proper way. Yeah. And that, that is both um, to our detriment and to the detriment of, of the edification of those around us. So it is super important. And I, I think that we have to continue to bring ourselves back into the scriptures so that we are constantly like staying in our lane because otherwise yeah. we're prone to wander. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people talk about the, um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and I've heard it said that, that the Westminster Shorter Chasm starts, car- Shorter Catechism, it's tough easy one. for me to say, um, starts with theology proper, but that's not really actually true. Right. So if you read the shorter catechism carefully and the larger catechism, both of them, it starts with worship. So question one is, what's the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or if we were to say that a little more simply, man's chief end is to worship God. Right. And then it, and then it goes on to question two 
and says, what rule has God given us to direct how we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is the scriptures. So, so right off the bat, right out of the gate in the shorter catechism and the larger catechism, although it's a little more expanded in the large catechism, the, the beginning of the system of doctrine in the Reformed tradition, as far as the catechism goes, is not theology proper. It's not even really the theology of the scripture, although that's tied in. What it is, is it's the theology of worship, right? So the purpose of man, right? The chief end of man is to worship God. And the means by which we know how to worship God is the precepts of the scriptures. It's right. not it's not our own intuition. It's not the light of nature. It's not, um, you know, it's not what works best in this generation. It's the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. Um, and then what it says is, what, what do the scriptures principally teach? And what it teaches is uh, what, what man is to believe about God. So, right, doctrine is part of worship. And what duty require, uh, God requires of man. So our obedience is part of worship. So all of this kind of crystallizes in this reformed distinctive of worship that our our primary purpose as creatures is to worship and glorify God. And the means by which we are to do that is the positive, explicit, expressed commands of scripture and deduction by good and necessary consequence. So I don't think that you can emphasize enough in in the the reformed tradition that scripture is to be regulated by God's word. You know, it, people used to ask, you know, how do you define the regulative principle or what is the regulative principle? And we all kind of have our pat answers, but the fact is like the regulative principle simply is the consistent application of the doctrine of sola scriptura to the practice of worship. That's exactly. all that we're talking about. So Lutherans, Anglicans, um, they inconsistently apply sola scriptura to worship in that their worship is not actually governed by scripture. It's It might be restricted by scripture in a sort of broad sense, but it's not governed exhaustively by scripture the way that the Reformed tradition intends to be. Right on. I'm glad that you brought up the Shorter Catechism because one of the things I've been trying to do recently is not only metabolize the questions and their answers, but also ask them of myself in terms of how am I doing at living or seeking a life of piety and holiness that is commensurate with the question. And the yeah. question one is very challenging to me because lately I've been asking myself like at the end of the week or at the end of the day, how did I do at glorifying God and enjoying him today? Yeah, and, and I think that drives us back into, again, this heart of worship. What What is it that worship is? What is it that we are, in a sense, trying to achieve, so to speak? What is it that we hope to, to benefit and profit from in this course of worship? Because we know, we've already said that worship is basically like, it's a, a spigot that's always on. So the problem is, we just don't know where to point it most of the time. And everything collapses underneath the weight of worship except the God himself. Yeah. And so I find it really interesting, like you've already quoted from, in terms of the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I've always thought it strange in that passage that Jesus makes it clear that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth, which implies that it's, of course, possible to worship him in all kinds of different ways that he is not seeking. Right. So that may seem like really obvious, but I think that that should give us pause to say when we worship him privately, when we worship him corporately, what does it mean to worship God prob uh, properly? Because I think the problem is we're interested in our own pleasure and happiness. So the biggest questions that we tend to ask about worshiping God are questions about how we can fix our problems with God. 
Right. And, but Christianity, of course, is, is or the Reformed tradition in particular, is, is really God-centered, which I love. So God's not existing for our happiness. We're existing for his. And we're created in the beginning to worship, and we are redeemed to worship. So that, again, says to me, along with this conversation with the Samaritan woman, that the penchant to worship remains for us, even after their fall. But our ability to rightly focus that worship was totally corrupted. Yeah. So this is why I think it's so important, like you're saying, that we have this guide, and the guide is the scriptures. And I think some would argue or even come strongly against you know, certain traditions in the Reformed faith by saying, well, you're being too restrictive with your understanding of what particularly like the gathering of on the Lord's Day is like. But I really have a lot more grace and compassion for that sensibility because there's a sense that they just want to do it rightly. And it's yeah. not about like, well, this is what's conservative or and, and the, this is we don't want to do anything that's contemporary. I think for the most part, it's well beyond that. It's just trying to get to be always grounded in worshiping God the way that he has commanded. And there's nothing wrong, I think, in a sense of saying, we want to use materials. We want to use liturgy. We want to use uh, the scriptures themselves exclusively in worship because we know that this is a safe place for us to be and that we know that we're not straying outside of uh, the scriptures. So, yeah. I mean, like, how do you reconcile that when, because I'm sure you've been a part of those discussions about, well, how we order the worship and what we use in that time of worship. Uh, where do you fall on like kind of assimilating all of those, that kind of the spectrum of what the regulative principle means in practice? Yeah. I mean, in practice, I, th I think when we're applying the regulative principle to particularly to the worship on the Lord's day, um, it's not the case, you know, we've talked about this before. It's not the case that the regulative principle doesn't apply in other contexts. And actually, if you look at the Westminster Confession, what's interesting is in their chapter on good works, there's actually almost like a regulative principle of good works that, that only that which God commands as good can be considered good works under, you know, under the law of um, the, the third use of the law. But particularly on the Lord's Day, I think that that it's it's being intentional to be able to tie everything that you're doing in the service um, to some sort of defined scriptural command, right? So, so we, um, you know, we sing songs. Well, you get that out of Colossians three sixteen and the, the parallel in Ephesians. We right. we have um, a call to worship, which sort of convokes or um, gathers the. It's the formal gathering or summoning of. Uh, the worshipers to the task of worship on a Sunday morning. It sort of kicks off our um, our service, and we do things that would not would not be proper for worship, but but have to kind of be attached to our service, so like announcements um, or or things like that. Um, but we do that before the call to worship. So the call to worship kind of formally kicks off the worship by summoning the saints into the act of worship. Um, and then that the service is closed with the benediction. So even though there might be things that happen after the benediction, that wouldn't be proper for the worship service um, because the call, the, the benediction closes the worship service, you know, so finding, finding a way to only incorporate elements in your worship that you can tie to a scriptural uh, command is kind of key to it. And if you can't, if there's something in your service that you can't tie to a scriptural command, then you have to be asking, why is this here? Why, right. why do we do this? If it's not because the scriptures has commanded us, then why? Is it because we think that, um, 
somehow this is um, significant in terms of attracting people, right? You know, like a skit or something like that. Sometimes people will do skits or like drama during the worship service. And if you ask them, well, where, where do you see this in worship or in the scriptures? The answer is going to be like, well, it's not there, but we do this because we think it's going to be effective in drawing people in. Right. So, so at that point, what they're saying is something like, well, we're wiser than God because he, he didn't include this in our command to worship, but we, we know better than that. We got to include that in the command to worship. So I'm glad you brought that up because let me throw another question at you. I think that a lot of people think in those two extremes, or sometimes people think in those two extremes, where they are trying to discern what is really the primary goal of the Lord's Day. And sometimes it's presented like this. Well, on one side, we have those who believe that really the time of gathered worship on the Lord's Day is really a feeding of the sheep. And right. then sometimes it's presented, well, there's this other camp that believes it's an evangelical outreach Right. To gather more people from outside the fold into the building so that they can hear the gospel. So yeah. how does how would you say the regular principle deals with both of those kind of extremes? I mean, I, maybe I'm kind of extreme, but I, I think that I kind of hold a strange position in, in where I actually believe that the primary vehicle, the primary context of conversion is the local church on the Lord's day. So the preaching of the gospel on the Lord's day is the primary means by which God, um, God's spirit creates faith and effectually calls those who are elect. Right. But I don't believe that the, um, the Lord's day worship savers service is an evangelistic endeavor. So it's not as though, um, you know, like I said, that, that may seem contradictory at first, but the Lord's Day worship is for the elect, right? And sometimes the elect are not regenerate yet, and sometimes they are. And so the Lord's Day worship is the way that God um, God constitutes his church, right? Right. So we talk about the convocation or like the the um, the prayer of invocation, right? That that begins the worship service. That's kind of the formal, besides the call to worship, it's the formal kickoff where we convoke the saints. We call them together, we gather them, and then we proclaim the word to them. So we talk about this, we talked about this in the seeker-sensitive episode, right? Where churches sometimes um, structure their service catering to the unregenerate, Right. And so, of course, you're going to have problems with your service if you cater it for people who don't want who don't want to follow Jesus. Right. Your service is not going to look the way that God wants it to if your service is designed to cater to fallen sinners who are not regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Um, And, you know, there's all sorts of theological underpinnings to that. But at the end of the day, the worship service is for the saints to gather and serve the Lord in the way that he is prescribed, not in some contrivance of man. Right. I'm, I don't think that was a bad answer at all, actually. I mean, you split the uprights on that, but I'm actually exactly with you because I think that's why I asked it that way. It's kind of like a eight trick question in a sense, because I think it's a false dichotomy, right. right? Yeah. It's this idea that, well, if we're going to quote unquote, save people, then we have to appeal to them and do so on the Lord's day. Whereas I think what God initiates through the regular principle by way of the scripture is it's just preach the gospel. Right. And I'm going to raise up for myself a people by you doing that, that you don't have to do anything in particular or special. In fact, the special thing is doing what I have prescribed on the Lord's day like that. And that's what always floors me. It's like, that is the beauty. Like we don't need to go searching for any different or more glorious thing than what God has actually given us, which is to, you know, to perform the ordinances or sacraments in terms of the preaching of the word and baptism and, and uh, the sharing of bread and the uh, cup 
those things are so beautiful and amazing in and of themselves. I think what happens is most of the time we fall into this rut where we just fail to appreciate how beautiful all those things are. So I love that the Reformed tradition in reforming worship has taken a a really strong position on making sure that the gathering on the Lord's Day is really thoughtful. Like you said, that everything is tied back to something that is in the scriptures. But even, you know, when you're, I just hope we all appreciate, like when you're sitting in a, a, a Bible preaching church and there's, you know, music or there is responsive reading or there is a text that's read out loud. I hope, and I guess I'm talking to myself in particular, that we're appreciating all those elements, that we're taking time to metabolize and to slow down and to really savor everything that's going on. Because when a sermon and a service has been put together in a very thoughtful way, that is some really wonderful worship. And we shouldn't let any of those pieces just pass us by. You know, like, we'll just read the words off the screen real quick, or we'll just, I'm not really into this song, so I'm I'm just going to kind of, you know, go through the motions. That, that says as much about us as, as me complaining about any other type of worship that I find to be normative or outside the bounds of what I think is appropriate. It, it, I think that it has to start with us in our own hearts, and we have to be the kind of people that are going to be good listeners and good participants in worship. And that we've talked about that as well. It's time for preparation, what that means. <coughs> um, but I was reading in John 6 today, and I was just blown away again by just in that single chapter, how many times Jesus says that only those whom the Father calls will be the ones that he will be able to save, yeah. essentially. Not able to save, but be the ones that he will raise up on that last day. He says at least two times, and of course, every time it's offensive to people. Right. And so I think about that in a context of what you just said, that when we have times of worship together— as the community of the saints, that that is a very intimate experience. And I can understand that aside from just using Christian language for the sake of Christian language, because we don't know what it means, but for those services that are very thoughtful, liturgical or not, because everybody has a a informal liturgy, it is going to be, there are going to be times where I could see that being awkward or strange for somebody who's just walked in off the street, for instance, but that doesn't mean we should change it. Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing that God himself is using because he knows best to draw those onto himself. And you're right. I think it sounds extreme, but when we say, well, on on these particular Lord's Day, we're going to do certain type of specific outreach, more extreme or different than what we normally do, then we are basically saying that our, the normal pattern that God has prescribed is not good enough or that God is not aware that holidays exist in our cultures and that people will be more inclined to attend a gathering on a certain Sunday yeah. on this particular time. We're, we really are cutting the legs out from underneath of the gospel. Yeah. And we just need to, to preach the gospel. I was actually just speaking with somebody this week about uh, the upcoming holidays. And I, I was just saying that I appreciate so much uh, pastors who are faithful in the pulpit to no matter what the season is, if you want to during the during the Christmas time, if you want to preach the incarnation, I'm totally down with that. You can also preach it any other time of year. But I love that when we always we get a sermon at Christmas time that's about the incarnation, but it, it's the full gospel. It's it's the whole yeah. thing. It's the whole revelation. It's not just this one kind of like little hallmark type sermon on a cute baby boy, yeah. but something about you know the the remission and the forgiveness of sins the death of Christ that comes in this beautiful condescension. Like give us the whole package all the time. 
that's that's what really empowers me. That's what gets me fired up. And obviously, I'm just getting fired up. And you should definitely start talking. Yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> that didn't phase you at all. Didn't phase me at all. Um, <laughs> you know, two thoughts is something. You know, the church exists in a certain sense to be countercultural, right? That we should be of this world or in this world, but not of this world. Right. And right. so this idea, this like celebrating Christmas, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot as we come into like the beginning of Advent season, which um, I like to call uh, Advent is for Papists uh, season, because that's kind of what it turns into <laughs> online in terms of uh, reformed Facebook yes. groups is it's like the beginning of the season. It just kicks off this like this like 40 day argument about whether or not we can celebrate the incarnation in December. Um, but I had this conversation at work the other day, you know, I'm, I'm new to the department I'm in, I'm a new supervisor, so I have to manage my employees and all of them want time off during the winter holidays. Um, and then I have, I have this whole other circle of leadership and we have to kind of negotiate who's covering for who and, and who's going to cover what departments during the, during the winter holidays. And someone in a meeting looked across the table to me and, you know, like my resume is very, it's very clear that I went to an evangelical college. I studied theology. They asked me what I like to do. I talk about this podcast. I talk about blogging. So it's very clear that I'm a Christian. And somebody said something at one of the meetings along the lines of, well, of course, Tony's going to ask for Christmas Eve off because that's a religious holiday. And I didn't even think about it. This wasn't an attempt to make a point of any sort, but I just kind of absentmindedly said, well, actually, it's not a religious holiday. I said, I, I don't recognize formally any religious holidays except the Lord's Day. And they kind of said, what, what do you mean? And it was this weird, beautiful opportunity to explain that, that reformed worship, Christian worship as it is presented in the Bible— is a one in seven dedicated to the Lord exclusively rhythm that every right. Sunday I have an opportunity to celebrate on the highest holy day of the Christian calendar, which is only seven days long. And so it was this, this opportunity to not only be countercultural in terms of the culture recognizes these, these weird days out of the year that everybody takes off work, that everything shuts down and they don't really know why there's no good reason for it anymore. But at the same time, also be countercultural to what their expectations of Christianity are. Because I think a lot of people who are sort of exposed to cultural Christianity, like civic Christianity, they have this impression that like Christians really only get excited about their faith around Easter and around Christmas. So to be able to say like, no, Christ Christians who are actually worshiping the Lord get excited about their faith every single Sunday. It's this special right. day of blessing that the Lord has given us. And, you know, that kind of led in my mind to another, I, I'm, you know, I've been working on memorizing the shorter catechism, which I can't, I can't recommend enough because you start to see the way that the catechism unfolds as a body of doctrine, as like a systematic theology um, in ways that you didn't when you start to memorize it. And so I'm I'm into the 40s, which is like the beginning of memorizing like the Ten Commandments, what the, what the sins are, what they forbid, what they allow, what they require. And it struck me that all of the commandments that are in the first tablet of the law, the first table of the law, which relate to how how we are as creatures to interact with the Lord, how how as a covenant body of of followers we're to we're to interact with the Lord, all of them have to do with worship. They all have to do with worship. Um, and that's, that's 
largely in part because there is no interaction between the creature and the creator that is not in some sense worship. It's either worship or it is, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, like the opposite of worship. It's either ascribing worth to God or it's trying to claim that God is not worthy of you. He's not worthy of your worship. And so, you know, you have the first commandment, which is that God is the only God. And what's interesting about the catechism is it's not just about acknowledging that God is the only God, but that he's our God and our Redeemer. And then you get into the second commandment, and it's about how do we worship God? We don't worship according to image. We worship according to the precepts of the Lord. It's the regulative principle of worship. And then the third is how, how do we how do we claim and apply the name of God to our life, right? As a Christian, I literally bear the name of my God in my very identity. And how do I do that, right? I don't do that vainly. I don't do that under false pretenses. Right, and then exactly. how do I structure my life, right? The Sabbath is about how we structure our life, not just about how we attend church on Sunday, but how do we structure our life? And the answer is by devoting one day and seven to the Lord. And, and you know, there's disagreement about exactly what it means, but taking all of all of the other stuff, that that's usually good stuff, ordinary employment, ordinary recreation, things that are good and that are gifts from God and a blessing on God's people to be able to enjoy fun, um, to enjoy a good movie or a good television show or read a good book. We take that and we, we absolve ourselves, we abstract ourselves from the ordinary vocation and recreation of life, and we dedicate that seventh day to worship. So the, the, the Ten Commandments really are the first four commandments really are all about worship. And so it's this whole life picture that we have to understand. Reformed worship is not just about what we do on the Lord's Day. It is about what we do on the Lord's Day, but it's not just about what we do on the Lord's Day. But really, Reformed worship is about full, complete submission and obedience to the Lord in in every regard, in the fact that he's our God, in the fact that we will only worship him, including the good works we do outside of the gathered worship of the saints, right? That's where chapter right. 16 of the confession gets into, that there's this regulative principle of life. The regulative principle is not just worship. So so we, we have God as our God. We worship him both in the Lord's day and out of the Lord's day in the ways that he's required, the good works of obedience he's required. We will not bear his name falsely or vainly, and we will devote one day in seven to looking forward, anticipating the day where all days will be devoted to the Lord and only to the Lord, right? That's what the Sabbath looks forward to. It's not just looking forward to our rest, but our rest is in Christ. So yes, Jesus is our Sabbath, but that doesn't mean we don't have a Lord's day. But that's that's because we anticipate the day where all of life in the most the most concrete sense all of life will be worship because we will live life quorum deo in the presence of god in actuality not just in anticipation which is where we kind of are stuck this side of eternity right on and basically what we find in the 10 commandments is not these restrictions so to speak but what i think we see in there is the freedom of worship so the fact that we are to have no other gods is actually freeing us up to know whom it is to whom we are responsible, whom right. we love, as opposed to having to, you know, be subject to all these capricious other lowercase g gods that, that m- might exist. Um, you know, I love that Martin Luther in his own time contrasted this idea of like theology of glory with the theology of the cross. Yeah. And of course, by theology of glory, he meant that fallen human nature is always looking for some kind of secret passageway to the Holy of Holies to see God as he really is without any kind of mediation. 
Because mankind isn't naturally content to know and experience God in only that way which he allows them to know and experience. So we invent these ladders to climb in order to kind of steal into God's presence. And sometimes that's things like merit. So we just get into some kind of spiritual routine based on meritorious performance or speculation. You know, everybody who says like, well, my idea of God is X. Um, And we worship on our own imagination or rumination or opinion or, or we, we're mystics, and this is still happening in our day and age. You know, some people will say, you know, if, if I could just like purge myself of sinful thoughts or restrain our sinful passions or just open up my heart to God, suddenly I'm going to be in God's presence. Yeah. This idea of experience over doctrine. I mean, that was Luther himself for, as like a monk. And so uh, you're right on point. I like this idea of understanding the Ten Commandments as a way of life and as a way of worship, because the theology of the cross is that we really must come to terms with the fact that God cannot be approached by sinful human beings by our own cleverness or in our own righteousness or our own experience. God must come to us, save us, and reveal himself. And he does that in the scriptures. He does that in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So it's, you know, to talk about God is not the same as taking the time to really proclaim God's attributes and work as it's unfolded through the pages of scripture. Yeah. And that is really the great benefit of, or one of them, of this reclamation of worship in the Reformation, this idea that all of life is worship, that there is no higher or lower work, but then as well that the freedom that we receive in Christ is exactly what you said, and that is to enjoy time of rest, rhythm that God has given us as part of the blessing of worship. So it's it's this full kind of fully orbed understanding that the Lord's day is important and every other day beyond that is important yeah. as well. But I almost wish we could just get people more, maybe not the people listening to this cause they're probably super stoked already. <laughs> but if we, there's almost like we, I wish we could just like throw a banner, dry, fly a plane with a banner behind it saying like, get excited for the Lord's yeah. day. Like just realize, I think it starts with the mind, honestly, is if you've never really, if you've been in a tradition where it's kind of like, this is just routine and rhythm and it doesn't feel particularly special. Like I almost think we need to get ourselves to the place where it feels special, not with emotionalism, but in the sense that our minds are thoroughly convinced that this is a special day that we set aside. And so that we're willing to actually sacrifice other things to make sure that our focus is on God and his people yeah. together, but not in a way that's legalistic as we've talked about before, because it's not just like we, we want to rest on the Lord's day because that gives us good satisfaction because we feel good physically or mentally. That's not what it's about. It's about actually glorifying God and enjoying right. him. And we, we need to ask ourselves, are we achieving that in our lives through worship, especially on the Lord's yeah. day? Yeah. You know, I remember, um, you know, I've talked about this big mega church that I used to go to in Minneapolis and, you know, I've reflected on this a lot in probably the last like two years is Sunday morning worship never really felt special to me. Like it never felt, I, I wouldn't say it didn't feel refreshing. It, it felt, you know, I would go and I would, I would hear a sermon and it was spiritually edifying and, and all of those pieces were in place, but it never felt like there was something special going on on the Lord's day. And I think that in large part, it was because we were also doing the same things on other days of the week. And, you know, the, there's a there's a good and I would say a holy motive that that it lies behind this propensity that churches, especially bigger churches that have to deal with like 
how do we fit all of these people in one room and we have too many people, fire codes, all that stuff. The answer is, right. or I have, a, I have a population of people that always work on Sunday morning. So let's just give them a Saturday evening service or a Saturday morning service. There's this propensity to do that that I think comes from right motives. But what I think it actually does is it diminishes the uniqueness of the Lord's day. Right. And, you know, this kind of pervades everything. So Ashley was a youth director, as you know, in Connecticut for about nine months. And the the common language that I hear from pastors is like, well, my Sabbath is on Monday because that's the day that I actually get to rest. That's the day that I actually get to take off work. And I, I guess I feel like that not only does that miss the point of the Sabbath, that it's not about cessation of work but it's about um, a heightened experience of God's presence and his and worship. Right. But right. it also diminishes the uniqueness of the Lord's day. Because if, if we can just, and this, this, this is one of those things that I sometimes get accused of legalism about online, but I really strongly believe that we're not, we're not given the liberty to replace Sunday with a different day of worship. And I don't want to stand in judgment over anyone else. So, so anyone who's listening to this, don't, don't hear it this way. But, you know, you and I went, uh, when we were on vacation this last time, we went to church on Sunday. And for me, that was really important because, you know, I don't feel right in most instances about not worshiping on the Lord's day. Now, there are going to be times that, that that happens, that I'm just, I'm not in church on Sunday for whatever reason, some of them within my control, some of them not. But when it's within my control and I don't have a, a um, compelling reason to be outside of the gathered worship of the saints on Sundays, I feel strongly that I should be. And I don't feel like going to a Saturday evening, I should stop saying feel. I don't think that the scripture allows us to say Saturday evening worship is a substitute for Lord's Day worship. I don't even really think that saying um, some sort of Sunday evening like worship experience, like some churches have like a Sunday night, um, like just music. It's just like a Vesper service with just like musical right. worship. That also doesn't replace the Lord's Day gathered saints worship. So, I mean, I guess I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but it's just something I've been growing in conviction over the last year or two that... You know, I just, there's something unique and special that is a, a special gift that God has given to his people to gather us together on the day the Lord was raised from the dead in the morning at the time right. that he was raised from the dead, right? There's something about right. the morning even um, that I'm not dogmatic on, but there's something about that that is a special element that God has given to his church for worship that I don't think we should we should casually disregard. And a lot of places do. They just kind of, it's just kind of like Sunday becomes a circumstance of worship rather than an element of worship. And I don't think that's justified scripturally. Right. I'm actually prone to agree with you on that. If that's um, legalistic, then let me jump in that <laughs> boat with you. Because I, I'm with you. Because if we just think logically... Some of what makes something special is its exclusivity. So if we're going back to the regular principle, either this day is important and it was chosen for a reason or it's not. Right. So we've talked about, at length before about what Paul says about that in terms of, we won't go back into that, but there is a sense, there's a clear direction in the scriptures that the day is set aside for a special gathering right. And that you're right, it shouldn't be changed flippantly. And there may be reason for a period of time where you, you might want to adjust that. But I think what we're, again, what we get from the Reformation is this sense that worship is beautiful and 
I'm going to use the word fun, like enjoyable. So it's beautiful, it's enjoyable, but it's also serious yeah. and it takes work and it takes a little bit of, of saying, I want to die to, to myself here and be passionate about serving God, glorifying him, acknowledging his glory, his, his weightiness in the way that he requires and has set aside because I know that it is for his glory and also for my good, right. that he just knows what's best for me. So any kind of wonderful side benefits that might come out of worship by way of obedience are just exactly that. They're just like icing on the cake. Yeah. But the bottom line is that God is the one who gets to decide how he is worshiped. And if that he decides that it's going to be on this day, then we ought to take that very seriously. Or at least we should really pause significantly yeah before we just move it around because we think that it, it suits a culture, one culture better than the other or one particular area or one schedule better than the other. I also have to think that if Christians writ large were just more excited about Sunday, that their neighbors would notice that kind of yeah. thing. That if they treated it like a legit, like we're talking about like a legit holiday, like you should get up excited that this is the day you get to go be with your brothers and sisters, yeah. that you're going to get to sing and talk and hear the word preached and be challenged and leave the pew different than when you came in. Like we should be pumped and stoked about that. And that should be evident. We should wear that on our sleeves yeah. because, you know, one of the funny things is as we approach Christmas time, I've always thought this is odd. I think we've talked about this, that it's almost like everybody, almost everybody's attitude changes. Yeah. It's you know, like this peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Like where, where's that Christian ethic every week? And especially as we approach the Lord's yeah. day, where is that? Yeah. Uh, so I, I just want to like rekindle that kind of excitement because I, I sense the more and more I read from the reformers and what they're talking about worship, it wasn't dogmatic. It wasn't in the sense that they were just saying, here's a bunch of rules that we've really lost. And we just need to come to terms with getting, checking off these boxes every week. These were men and women who were just so passionate about worshiping God, about coming before him and honoring him with all of their lives, but especially when they got together, that it was just, they were overflowing with love for one another, love for God himself. And it was this expression that the gospel had changed them so thoroughly that their worship flowed from that. So like we said, you cannot worship what you do not know. Yeah. And because they were so focused on let's understand God rightly, it just, it's almost like they didn't understand what they were getting into. They started, they went back to the scriptures, Luther, Calvin, they were so thoroughly transformed by the power of God that their worship couldn't help but be transformed. Yeah. And that's kind of where I want to be is always in that place where my worship is being reformed because my mind is being transformed. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. And you know, as you're talking, I, I just thought of this scenario is, you know, I don't know anybody who, you know, does a gift exchange with their family on Christmas day or, or Christmas Eve night or whatever. I don't know anybody who would wake up that morning and go, eh, you know, I had kind of a late night. I think I'm just going to skip it. Right. You know, it's fine. There's another one. It'll right. be fine. I don't know anybody that has that attitude for these sort of, e even, you know, um, Christmas is for papist uh, sentiments aside, right? Whatever, whatever that, that annual thing you do, what, maybe it's your birthday. I don't know anybody that gets up and goes, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. There, there's a there's a football game on today, so I think I'm going to skip my birthday party. Like people just don't do that, and right. I feel like we've reduced we and I'll call it myself in this at least historically, we've reduced the Lord's Day to even lower in status 
than something like our birthday or Christmas day. And maybe, maybe I just put the final nail in the coffin for me for Christmas day, um, or for, for that kind of celebration. But, you know, people will skip church on a Sunday for almost any reason, right? Um, I went out and saw a movie last night, right? The new Avengers movie had a midnight release. I'm going to go on, on Saturday night. Um, I don't know why you would go at midnight on a Saturday night, but I, I'm going to go to a late movie. And I, so I'm too tired to get to church or, uh, you know, I'm just, I woke up and I don't feel great or, uh, you know, there's a football game on, or I've got a family reunion or whatever. It's like we, any reason we can find that gives us a good reason or an excuse not to be in worship on the Lord's day. It seems like by and large evangelicals take those opportunities, but we would never behave the same way about something as frivolous and silly as a birthday party. Right. I mean, it's right. not a miracle that you didn't die this year. It's a miracle that the Lord regenerated and saved me. It's a miracle that the Lord raised was raised from the dead. So I'm going to celebrate those. But it's not a miracle that I didn't die last year. It's not a miracle that, right. um, you know, the, the sun has gone around the earth or the earth has gone around the sun again. And, and we've reached December 25th again. Like, that's not a miracle. So I just feel like we need to recaptivate or recultivate that zeal that seems to come so naturally for other things. Right. The, we started off kind of joking about the World Series and how people are just going out of their minds for this. But people on the East Coast are going to stay up. They're going to start watching a four to five hour baseball game tonight. Uh, just now, right. actually, it's 810. It probably just started. They're going to stay up until one in the morning, assuming there's no extra innings. They're going to feel like zombies tomorrow at work. But but sometimes they won't they won't devote themselves to the Lord's worship. So I guess, I, I don't know. I don't really know where we go from there. It's just something I've been reflecting on. <laughs> I've been thinking the same thing. I, and that's why I think it's always good, especially this time of year, because it's a good excuse because of Reformation Day in particular, but is to consider these things again. Yeah. It's always good to come back to a regular schedule and to ask, am I worshiping in spirit and in truth? And what does that even mean? Because we quote those words a lot, yeah. but I'm, and I'm glad you kind of threw out some really good definitions at the start of our conversation to get us thinking about what that actually means practically, because the beauty of so much that happened in, rec- in reclaiming worship through the Reformation was taking what was done as kind of spectator sport or vicariously in languages that were not understood by uh, a mediator that was not appropriate and transforming that back, or I would say kind of pushing it back into the, the first century church in such a way that we are actively participating in what it means to gather together and to worship. And it's easy for us in our American culture, I actually think, to revert back to kind of a pre-Reformation form of yes. worship where we're mostly consumers yeah. and we just show up and everything's done for us. And we can feel good if we can get kind of a soundbite out of the sermon and then, you know, to, going back to where we started, as long as it ends at noon and I can walk out of there, I feel like I've done my duty. Yeah. And so I want us all to get back to the place, me especially, where we're just excited to be in the Lord's house. So excited, like you said, that if it goes 10, 20, 30 minutes beyond what we expected, that that's no problem because we show up without an agenda. Yeah. We show up ready to worship, but to worship on God's terms. And I just find that so difficult to do. We want to worship, like you said. We just point it in the wrong directions. It's we're or worshiping creatures. We can't help but do yeah. that. So how do we get back to the place where we're in the garden, so to speak? Uh, at least the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives. Is is creating space in our lives for us to really focus on 
what it means to be in the presence of God and to not worry about anything yeah. else. So I don't know where to go with that either, except uh, I'm just, I'm walking through that with you. You know, something you just said struck me, you know, we show up without an agenda and I think maybe less so the actual gathered worship, but part of the reason I think that Sunday morning sometimes feels like such a burden and why we get so stressed out if the sermon goes long or, you know, if Sunday school goes long is because we filled up the Lord's day with all this other stuff. You know, mm, if, if right. the only thing I have to attend to on the Lord's day is the worship of the Lord, then, then the fact that the sermon goes long is great. Like, that's great. That just, it's, True, it's, right. it's, it's, it's great. It's already what I'm hoping to accomplish is already happening. Um, you know, I guess I could get upset if the sermon goes long and it, it takes me away from some time that I devoted to studying something else, you know, studying some theological work or something. But coming without an agenda is really just another way to say that the Lord is going to set my agenda for the Lord's day. Right. That, that might mean that the sermon goes long. It might mean that the sermon goes short and I enjoy some time of of communion, not like the Lord's Supper communion, but just communion with the other saints. So, I mean, there, we could we could probably continue and just talk about this sort of like stream of consciousness, stream of consciousness, having trouble tonight, um, <laughs> for like another hour, because it's there's so much to plumb in this, this topic. And I, I feel like we're doing like group therapy, you and I, because I feel like there's been things coming up. <laughs> in my own <laughs> life, in my own practice that I, I can't really reflect it on deeply. So we probably should like either start billing for this or maybe like, I don't yeah. know, I should get the, I don't know get if some I tissues. owe you money or you owe me I, money. I don't know how this works. I don't works. know. I feel like maybe our listeners owe us money. Is that how it works? <laughs> wow. Can wow. I just send a bill out to the, no, I would never do that. Just invoice, invoice everybody. Invoice everybody. Yeah. So, well, to that end, if you'd like to join in on this conversation, please do. And you can do that by calling and leaving us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Yes. And we were supposed to do question cast tonight, but our schedule got a little bit off uh, due to some life circumstances. So there's still time to get your voicemail in and we can address it on the next the next time we do a question cast. This has been great, Tony. I appreciate our conversations and I love it when we, sometimes we just have a stream of consciousness yeah. together. Hopefully everybody else found something in there that was <laughs> useful or encouraging or edifying, or maybe they just stopped listening after we stopped talking about the World Series. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe they remembered that the World Series was coming on and we're like, wait, they're not listening in real time. It's already too late. What am I talking about? I, mean, I guess it doesn't have to be too late. It could, could go till Wednesday, right? I don't remember how the World that's Series true. works. Are there seven games, right? That's that's true. But yeah, there are seven, best out of seven. But being the good Red Sox fan that I am, when you said that, I didn't even consider the option that it would go any further because I just really want them to win. So I can sleep again and my life will be less stressful. I don't even know what game we're on. I don't know who... What? I, I don't know who the other team is. I, I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I, have, I know nothing about this. I'm actually surprised that you've been able to avoid it. I uh, see. I've been seeing all the like auxiliary stuff about how long the game is, and didn't Trump get like criticized? The man, it's the Dodgers, right? See, yes. I'm, yeah, I'm well pulling done. all of this together based Osmosis. on random things I've seen on the internet. I don't think I've actually seen any footage of any of the game. Most of what I'm getting That's is okay. from President Trump's Twitter and memes on Facebook. 
So wow, I can I can only imagine how you view baseball. I don't view baseball. That's the the point. (laughs) But I mean, if your understanding of the World Series is being shaped just by Trump's tweets about baseball, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I think after he's the president, he's going to have to buy a baseball team and see if he can pull that off. He could buy a baseball team. He's got enough money. That's factually correct. Anyway, we should probably bring this plane down since we're way past our normal time. So, Jesse... I I was actually going to say, we need to pull up. We need to do something. So, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh